Hello, and welcome to a new episode of Other Record Labels. I'm your host, Scott Orr, where we talk about the art and culture of running a record label. We also talk about the art and culture of starting a record label, and that's kind of the theme for the next couple of episodes and the previous episodes uh, as we kick off this new year. Today's episode is with an incredible lo-fi hip-hop label. I, I had the pleasure of camping out on their website a couple weeks ago and just got goosebumps listening to, to their tunes. Um, it's just such uh, incredibly rich music. Um, it's Today we're talking with Mike, the founder of Mellow Music Group. Now you've got to, if you want to put some music on in the background while you listen to this, go to mellowmusicgroup.bandcamp.com to check out their releases. And their website is mellowmusicgroup.com and mellow is spelled M-E-L-L-O. If you are one of these people who are starting a record label, you have to check out our resources that we have on our website at otherrecordlabels.com, including our new record label toolkit. Our toolkit uh, comes with a workbook where you can kind of workshop your ideas for a new record label. It also comes with a sample contract that you can just uh, view, and there's a sample accounting spreadsheet. There's some checklists. There's tons of things in this toolkit. And just go to otherrecordlabels.com slash toolkit to download it. If you are, um, while you're listening to this episode, make sure you grab a pen and a piece of paper or open the notes app on your phone because you're going to want to be taking some notes. Uh, Mike has an incredible business mind, um, but there's also some really uh, deep philosophical uh, um, nuggets that he drops throughout this episode. And I was actually writing them down on a piece of paper while we were chatting. I loved this interview and I think you're going to enjoy it as well. As I'm doing research, I'm discovering like how accomplished your label is. It surprises me because it's not necessarily a household name like some indie rock labels are, but all of your records are sold out and there's this incredible underground appreciation for your label and your releases. Are you someone who enjoys being underestimated or or does it piss you off? I mean, that's sort of the strategy. Like, um, in general, one, one of the things our, our Odyssey always says is um, people are always overexposure and underdevelopment. Mm. And my thing is, is you know, there's different versions of the music industry, right? So there's the there's the fame one, which it's just make your name as big as you can, and then you can sell whatever it is. I don't care if it's a T-shirt, an alcohol company, whatever. Yeah. That's fame chasing. Music just happens to be a commodity. Sure. And then there's the money launderers. <laughs> so I, I don't, you know, we try to avoid that side of people too because that's a that's a risky gangster business yeah, um, yeah. that we're not in. <laughs> and then there's actual musicians. And you know, the, the easy thing is if you can build it up that quick, it can come down that fast. Oh sure, yeah. And so to me, it's always been, you know, we started with let's just get a leg on this table, then let's get two legs, and let's get four, and let's make this really <laughs> solid. And I, I prefer that. Like, we would prefer one of the things we used to notice early on with Twitter, like, you know, this is when it first started years ago, but it was like Apollo Brown, for example, would have like 3,000 followers and sell 2,900 copies of records. Oh, wow. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it was like a one to one. Like, these are sure. actual fans. And then we'd meet people and you look at their numbers because everybody wants the numbers. Yeah. And they'd have, you know, 50,000 followers and struggle to sell 500 units. Uh huh. And I started noticing, like, even now I have to remind artists, you know, it's cool if you use Twitter as an entertainment form or if you become a following that way. I'm not going to say it doesn't have its value. Mm. But I look at these people who, who 
they like your tweets. They don't like your music. Yeah. <laughs> and they like your Instagram. Like yeah, I, yeah. I know a lot of people with hundreds of thousands of Instagram followers who are struggling to get the plays of a, a local indie artist. Right. And um, so for me, it's, you know, I also started before the label. I, when I was young, I worked in retail, which nobody likes to do, but yeah. I, I did that. And, you know, as a kid, and I, one of my first jobs at the mall selling clothes. So when everyone tells me, artists always want to tell me about merch, and you need it on the road, but I'm not a t-shirt salesman. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like I could sell, if I wanted to sell something for money, I would get into, into finance. You know what sure. I mean? <laughs> um, but I love music. So music's what I want to sell. Yeah. And so I don't care if it's CDs, vinyls, tape, streaming, whatever it is. If it's music, that's what I'm liking. Oh, um, yeah. The rest is sort of on the side for us. So I don't, to get back to your question, really, I love being sort of low-key because mm. you don't want to bring attention to yourself other than the fact that you want people to know what's happening with the music. Yeah. Um, so you talked about the, you said you were at the beginning of this, you were talking with Odyssey with somebody that's most people are overexposed, underdeveloped. So you go for the opposite. Is that right? Yeah, and I think it's just a product of social media and the new format. And yeah. it works. I mean, don't get me wrong. If it works for you, do your thing. Sure. But we don't hear the stories of the people who it doesn't work for. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah. there's more people than not. It's, you know, in general, a good way to put it is when people are asking, can you check my stuff out? Tell me what you think of it. If you have to ask that, You've already lost. Yeah, yeah, agreed. People will tell you pretty clearly what they think of things if they're interested or not. Yes. And if you're not hearing anything, that's your answer. There's your answer. Um, that's right. And it's, you know, we all go through it. We all want attention. We work hard for marketing and everything too. But we don't just want plays from random people that heard it for 15 seconds. Mm -hmm. we, we want fans. And from the beginning, that's been one of our big things is we still make albums. Yeah, <laughs> and so when I look at people too, uh, our albums, you know, when there's 15 tracks and every track has about the same number of plays, yeah, that's good. That, that means they're listening something. all the way through it. That's right. Um, playlisting can skew that because you know, in a day, something gets a hundred thousand plays for no reason mm. other than being on a list. Yeah, but in general, we want playable albums front to back that you revisit. Right, and for us in the streaming age, that's an advantage because. It's really nice. Our, our fans come back and they listen to our records a few times a week. It's just music in their life, yeah. front to back. Yeah, and so that makes it sustainable on on the streaming side as well as you know they want to have a copy of the vinyl or the Bandcamp edition download. So that's how we play that. Yeah, and I mean that that brings up an interesting topic, and and I, I've been thinking about that a lot myself because you're right. There are these passive listeners on playlists who may not even know who the artist is that they're listening to. At the same time, for me, and then of course on the opposite of the spectrum, we look at the Bandcamp people who who know the artists, who listen to the album front and back, who buy the physical product. Uh, for for me, they can coexist, and that they're actually codependent. Like to me, like I I appreciate the passive listeners because they give me money that where I can press vinyl, I can do fun things and hire musicians. So I actually kind of a I think they're both kind of important. Yeah, we had a, a thing online, you know, the Spotify wrapped. Yes. Everybody was posting. Yes. And everybody gets in their feelings during that time of the <laughs> I year. I wanted to ask you about that. Because listen, for our listeners, we're recording this right in the height of that <laughs> that <Yeah>. campaign week. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it's funny, though, because you get a lot of angry 
people at Spotify. They don't pay enough per play. And, you know, I don't want to say what the proper amount of royalties is. Yeah. Because I'm always going to fight for more for the artists. But in general, what people don't recognize is they've had this big pot of money, whether it's a million or 10 billion, Mm -hmm. and they chop it up amongst everyone based on streams. So the per stream count doesn't really matter much. It's the total revenue. Sure. So in general, you're getting, depending on who you're with, your deal, but roughly $5.20 out of every $10 that Spotify takes in. Right. Now, that's not to say that Apple or Tidal might not pay more per stream, but in general, you're getting $5.20 out of every $10 of revenue, revenue that Spotify generates. And that's really consistent with what happens when you start looking at CDs, vinyl at retail at retail yeah Mm -hmm. at retail through history and so you know nobody wants to bring up because we don't we love our fans yes it's (laughs) but we don't want to bring up that you're paying zero to ten dollars for unlimited music so if you listen to more music how is the artist getting paid more right you're absolutely right we encourage it because like you said it's passive like i think after the first 10 or 20 or fifty thousand plays you might be reaching beyond your fan base Uh uh-huh and so when you see, you know, outside of some people, when you see six million plays on a song, I doubt that some of our fans, that we have six million fans. That's right. Well, it's they like still, radio play. <clears throat> so and those people, both. you're right. And those people, you look at their profiles, they still have three or 4,000 followers, which is awesome. But you're right. That's not, uh, it's not six million followers. Yeah. So it's just, mm-hmm. for us, we're so appreciative because I, I know myself, I love music and I put the vinyl on when I get to the office. Mm-hmm. I play Spotify in the car. You know what I yep. mean? I have oh, yeah. CDs because I still have a CD player. Sure. Like we have tapes. Like I don't really judge how you listen to it. And I know the fans and Bandcamp's proven this and vinyl's proven it. Fans buy music when they're really your diehard fan. They buy your t shirt, they buy, go to your concert, they buy your vinyl, they stream it. It's, it's not a concern. So I'm really happy that we have it. Um, yeah. Because regardless, everyone knows streaming is. It's simple. It's easy. Yeah, and and I, I mean, I agree with you, and I I do think the problem is, and nobody's bringing this up, is the fact that they're you're, like you said, they're paying between zero and nine ninety nine, and and some usually somewhere in the middle for students, and I'm, uh, I agree that is the problem right there, and and Netflix has been slowly increasing their prices, so hopefully Spotify does that too, but at the same time, I believe the numbers are the average household is spending more on music in 2020 than they are than they were in 2000. I don't know those hey, exact numbers. I think that's right. And, and the other thing is, is the whole point of a Spotify or an Apple Music or a Tidal is to broaden who listens to music and what ages. Whereas, I don't know for sure, but if you go back 20, 30 years, you know, it's that targeted 15 to 25-year-old demographic true. that's buying new music. Your mom and dad weren't going out buying new records all the time. That's true. Now it is my mom, who, who's, you know, I won't give her age away, but <laughs> she's not a mom age anymore. <laughs> yeah. she's, uh, she listens to Spotify. It's oh, like, so wow. You have yeah. all the generations yeah. listening to music and consuming it at a much higher level, which is a great thing. And then she hit, she hit me up recently and was like, I kind of want to get a turntable again play some of these old records and get some new ones. And yeah. oh, that's wow. not something I think you saw 20 years ago. Um, Your mom sounds really cool. 
<laughs> She's great. <laughs> well, this is this is so fun because I, I started off with my first question, and then you forced me to go to my last question, which was about your tweet today about the wrapped, and I really liked it. And, and and I think what I like about your perspective is that you boiled it down, and this goes back to your your first answer was you boiled it down to building a fan base, not comparing yourself to others because you don't know the whole story, but just building a fan base. Um, I love that. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's what it's really about is that one-to-one transmission. Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's the same thing. That's what building a fan base means is it's winning people over one by one as humans. And it's, it's something I even take to, to PR and I remind new artists of this PR means I don't want to hear you want to be on this magazine or this site. I want to hear the name of the journalist you want to talk to. Right. Because these are people like yes. they've devoted their life to writing. Like Jeff Weiss, for example, Passion Weiss, he writes everywhere. But he's, for my money, one of the best journalists in the world um, for music right now. And, you know, that's who, if you like what he does, you want to talk with him and hear how he understands your music. If you like Anthony Fantano's reviews and you want to hear what he thinks of your stuff, uh-huh. say that. But to say, I want to just be on a site Good regardless point. of who's doing it means nothing. And as soon as you do that with artists or yourself, you can follow that writer and support their career and what they're doing. And you start to realize you get actual insight. And you don't worry as much about the review from the guy who doesn't like yours. You might not even like his writing or taste. <laughs> That's a good point. That's wise. It's becoming harder and harder for labels to justify their existence. I mean, it's always under scrutiny. It always has been. What value does a label bring to an artist these days, in your opinion? Um, it really depends on the label, mm-hmm. but what I tell artists is you don't need a label, but what do you need? And so those are the things you need to replace, right? I happen to know those things, a lot of them. So it's like, you do need someone to manufacture your records. Right. You do need someone to sell your record and distribute it. You do need somebody to, um, talk to press or to organize your schedule if you're busy. You do need someone to book your shows. You do need someone to introduce you to other fans. You do need someone to run your social media. All these things. You can Mm -hmm. do that yourself as an artist these days. But when you can't do that any longer or when you don't want to do an aspect of that, that's when you hire it. Artists can do graphic design. Why not? Well, maybe you don't want to spend the time to really get good at Photoshop. Like, (laughs) So you hire a graphic designer, right? And so that's what a good label should do. It should be a pared-down relationship that fulfills the needs the artist has. And, you know, a lot of artists think they're going to get a manager and that's going to change their game. Sometimes it could, but only at the levels where you, the managers already know their job and the artists already know it too. But you really, an artist needs a manager when they can't manage things themselves. So when you have so many interviews lined up that you can't coordinate them and talk or don't want to, that's when you need a manager or that's when you need a PR rep. Yeah. Like when we hire a PR person, a lot of people think they're going to get a lot of things they weren't going to get without them. You might get some. There's relationships involved. They can expose you to new people. But in general, the artist has earned that exposure. The PR person is just facilitating and navigating it. You know, mm. It's like I can make a candle, and my wife does sometimes. <laughs> but, but it's like I don't have the time. I want to go buy that, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. That's true. And there's people yeah. who can show you. So it's like paying for education, right? You can read the books too, but sometimes good teachers are helpful. And, and I think the label is that relationship too. We can advance money sometimes. We can uh, help with distribution. 
Um, and all of it's possible on your own. I think you, you should do that to the point where you can't anymore. Mm. Then you're ready for a label. And be cautious. Make sure you're with the right label. And it's not a label. It's a person you're working with. Um, yeah, no, that's a good point. I want, I'm going to ask you to, to, to give us a little bit of a history. But before I do, I, I, I really want to know, um, you know, hip-hop labels, I mean, really just like any genre, are probably started every day. But most don't make it. I mean, it's a lot like a lot of small businesses. But what makes a label thrive or, or even just survive, uh, in your opinion? Or, or what, you know, what is it that you prioritize for your label? So, I mean, the first thing is, is world-class talent. Like, hmm. you really have to say to yourself, there is unlimited anything today, as far as musicians, anybody. To get in the door, you have to be world-class to start. Hmm. So can you stand on a stage next to Black Thought and spit bars? Hmm. And even if you don't you know, blow people away compared to him, are you respectable? Sure. If not, well, you know you're going to sell less than that. So you have to make sure you're working with just not just people who are your friends or who you believe in or who rock the party that you knew, but actual world-class talent. Or you have to be willing to develop an artist to that point. Hmm. So that's the first thing. But once you have that, then you've got to make sure like that the artists are willing to, that they're built for this. Like there's not a lot of guys I know who really, when they get their wish and can be on the road 200 <laughs> days out of the year doing shows and staying in hotels and in studios who really enjoy that lifestyle and want to keep it up for 20 years. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you learn to start spotting that in people like people who have already been doing this music thing and music is their life. And you recognize it in their language when they speak of it as music, not rap. Yeah. Or, I mean, they can still talk about rap, but they don't view it as the thing that a lot of our, our tells that this person's looking for fame or this person just sure. is in a phase, but when they're musicians, it's something that's not going to fade. Um, that's the first thing. So that way, you know, you have good partners, but then on the business side, it just has to be, you never spend, my rule of thumb is you look at what you did last time and you try to get it to 150% the next time. Hmm. And that goes with, you know, advances. So whether I was giving someone a thousand dollar advance, 10,000 or a million, I'm going to look to give them 150% of what they did last time. Hmm. That's me showing I'm giving them more than they're worth and that I'm going to work this to the next level, but being reasonable and never, every artist thinks when they make a new record, this is their best ever. Yeah. And hopefully it is. But we hope that it, it's at any moment you can become, you know, overnight success and sell millions. We all know that. But until it happens, you're working on building a fan base and a gig. So I don't care if the new guy I have only sold 100 records. I'm going to get it to 150. And if he sold 10,000, I'm going to get it to 15,000. And you just keep trying to do that. And after each record, you make sure you do postmortems with them and you go through where you spent money that wasn't useful, where it was useful, how close to your goal you got. And the main thing is to make sure that you can be here next year too. You know, mm. it's you don't want to bet everything. And so many people think they have that one single or that one thing that's just so special, because it is. But you can't overinvest in it because it doesn't mean it's going to sell. Right. The other thing that happens that I have to remind people of is whatever you do this time is what you sell next time. Hmm. So if Explain. you get recognition this time, like you drop a record, 
and it comes out and it sells it's you know three four thousand copies or something you're pretty happy with that but it starts getting these awards or you know end of year recognition or starts bubbling you may creep up a few thousand more sales over the next six months but it doesn't match the level of recognition you reached when you drop that next album before people have even heard it you're going to sell beyond the level of the record that was that good hmm. and so when i drop a record today it's usually a reflection of what you did on your last record. Hmm. And so you have to remember that whatever you're investing now, you'll get back a little more than you did last time, if you're lucky, and you keep doing that. So that's another reason I think that one-offs don't make sense. You want to build relationships because if I have you on the label for one record, it's going to limit how much I want to pour into it of myself, of, our, of finances, of everything, because I got to get it back now or i can't sustain it but if i know you've got another record coming i can afford to overinvest myself our team our reputation in you so that we build something long term and um so I'm, it's, most of the artists i work with we don't have exclusive contracts but we try to do a good enough job that they don't want to go somewhere else yeah yeah no that's a good I love that. I, I was taking a lot of notes here. I love the 150% better concept. I mean, artistically and financially, uh, um, I think that's, I mean, it's it's kind of realistic because like you said, if you make a hundred bucks on, on your first record, then let's aim to, let's aim to almost double that. Let's, let's do 150, you know, like I, I'd yeah. love it. it. It really is scalable, um, and, but totally realistic. I like that. Yeah. How did this all begin for you? I read that it started in 2007. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, who knows where anything really begins, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the older I get, the more I trace it back to, to childhood. But yes, um, right, right. <laughs> but my first, the first record actually came out August 2008, and that okay. was Odyssey 101. Mm. But it was really 2007 that I was, this is something I'm doing and I'm building and formulating and, and getting in place. And if you go before that, though, you know, I had Mellow Mixes, which was a subscription mixtape service, you know, back in like 2004, 2003. Oh. And I had like, you know, I, I still I found a copy of this book I got, like how to build a business plan, like in 2002. <laughs> and I found my notes in there. And it was funny because it's like I had this whole dream of a, a record st a store with a studio in the back. Oh, with, that's awesome. With a newsletter. And I was running this magazine like called it was kind of a tribute to the nation uh, magazine, but it was a hip hop version. And I thought you'd have the media empire like Joe Weider. And I thought you'd have the studio, and <laughs> get the artists there and then sell records and audio equipment and um, oh, nice. mixtape subscriptions that never formulated. It didn't come, come together the right, way I wanted. Right. But in 07, it was like, I see how I can really do this. And it starts with creating songs and music. And it's funny. I, I didn't really know how the industry worked. So I bought, I started reaching out to these artists that I I liked and that I, I wanted to work with and just supporting, buying music from, buying beats. Oh, nice. And for the most part, it was, you know, Odyssey, Black Milk, George Ann Muldrow, Dudley Perkins, like um, those people. And then I'd, then I'd have all these beats. And, and it's like, I got to build a song. And so I, I didn't really realize what, how it was done. <laughs> and so I'd reach out to like, you know, I wanted to be world class. So I'd, I'd talk to really great people and whether it was Rapper Poo with Little Brother or um rob swift as a dj and put together these tracks 
it didn't take long for me to figure out that it wasn't my job to make the music. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I ended up building these great relationships because I'd hear music that Odyssey was making or I'd hear music that Black Milk was making or Georgia. And it was just like I had to, I had to buy 10, 15, 20 beats. And then I started, that's how my relationships with those people began. And then they became the first artists um, that we put together projects. And Georgia and Dudley were, were great and Odyssey was great. And, you know, I got introduced really early. I can't believe some of the luck sometimes, but it's like I was introduced to Damien at Groove Attack or um, over in Europe for distribution. Sure. When I had one record that I'd barely put together. Wow. <laughs> and, and then I happened to meet be introduced to uh, IODA, which was what became Orchard, which is owned by yes. Sony now. Yeah. And so back then, it's, it was the same people. You know, today I think the first rep I had is the head of music over at TikTok and just an amazing group of people out in San Francisco running one of these first digital platforms. And they, they happened, we linked up. And That's so what a, what a beautiful way to jump into the digital industry and, and physical. Um, and we quickly learned the physical side was way beyond us when they wanted like 10,000 units on our first pressings. And I was like, oh man, <laughs> I can't even afford to press 10,000. Yeah, oh, no kidding. So, uh, but we ended up eventually scaling down and it was really helpful. Like we worked with Fat Beats and they, they guided us through a lot. Um, and what a great realization early on that sometimes the major deal is not the deal for you. Right. Um, and that worked out really well. When you were working with Odyssey, which, by the way, was the iceberg that I was listening to today, front to back, mm -hmm. and was it's such a beautiful record. Um, just sonically, it's a beautiful record. But um, were how what was the role with the artists? Were they involved in building up the label from the beginning? So, even now, we're a very small organization, right? Mm -hmm. And and I don't like to waste money on. It's really me, the artists. Austin over here, our creative director, mm -hmm. and um, and then we bring in the team that we need. Um, so the distribution team and the PR team, Jonathan Kim, Matt Conaway, um, distribution with the Orchard and Bandcamp, of course, Andrew over there. But like, it's really those those same people that you just kept going to year after year. But we keep the team really small. Yeah. So early on, especially um, like Apollo Brown was maybe, well, no, I'll say Dudley Perkins too. Dudley and Apollo they worked with me hand in hand on every project. So we learned what we needed to about graphic design or whatever mm -hmm. it was they'd advise. And then over time, it didn't take too long where they were able to stick more to the music side. And I was able to uh, have those relationships in place. But even today, you know, every project I work, whether it's from a new artist to our biggest established artist, it's the artist and me and Austin. And then we bring in our orchard team, um, Riker and Tavar over there, and and we really just kind of put together what we need, whether it's a video director or you know photographers, or we build what we need for that particular project um, to create the vision. So, you know, they're not involved in the the day to day sure. uh, accounting and legal yeah, and sure. and logistics. That's that's me as director of operations, but um, but they're they're influential and they've built everything with me. Um, yeah. every single one of them. So, yeah, but I will say, you know, Apollo is a real special place for him. Um, and LaRange, um, of course. Right. So there's, there's been certain artists that you see that stick around a decade that clearly they, they built it and they'll have a home here when they don't want to make music. Although I hope that never, never <laughs> stops. <laughs> so. Um, it, I, uh, 
I read an article on you where you quoted Warren Buffett and talked about how you invested in starting a record label. And those two worlds kind of seem pretty incongruent to me. Like the ideas that the starting a record label is a good place to put your money seems crazy. What was your thought process <laughs> like that at the time? Like how, how were you confident enough to do this? Well, I, I don't know. I mean, I think maybe, um, I, I don't believe what most people believe because I get very tired of, it seems like most people are chasing what's already working uh. and you're already too late if that's the case. Yeah. Right. right. And, you know, maybe this is the old, I used to love Arnold Schwarzenegger as a kid, but it's like maybe his old attitude of do what you love and make it lucrative. <laughs> you know, if you don't really love it, you're not going to be able to put enough energy into it to reach the upper echelon. That's right. And, and I believe that. And it's like, so I always joke, like me and Austin over here, we joke a lot, like what's next? And I think, well, I definitely got to get into uh, uh, poetry and book publishing because what else could be harder <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to that's, sell? That's right. But it's, um, you know, anything that you're passionate about, I mean, I think that's the whole thing is you just share that with people and you make it beautiful. And it's it's something I believe in my regular life and I try to teach my family and, and people around me. I want to be surrounded by this energy. There's certain people who leave things better than they found it. Mm. And when you do that, it's so easy to attract attention. And in fact, you then hide from attention because people want what you have and you don't want to lose what you created. It's like when you find a beautiful hidden spot, you know, like I went over to Hawaii and, and you find this little hidden gem of a, a cove that no one's on. But man, people see your car parked on the side or they see you and it starts getting crowded. It's not the same space. Yeah, that's and right. So, and the same thing with your house. You fix up your house or you take care of your yard. The value goes up. Mm. It's just effort and labor of love. And so I really can't think there's anything that can't be, you know, if we, if we live in a commercial society and you want to monetize it, you're just monetizing your energy and your love. And I think that's easy to do. So that's why music for me was the spot. I also mm. grew up, you know, my mom uh, worked at a library and she didn't have a college degree. And my dad was a professor, and, and they were divorced, and, but still, I, I was close to both of them. And then I ended up having a stepfather who was like a father, and he was a professor. But we were, for a lot of years, I had a big family, six brothers and sisters. So we had, you know, we were middle class, definitely, but sometimes it was rough. Um, but what I learned is they were very practical, right? They were very much, get your education, do your mm. job, be a good person. And so, and especially back then, 80s, 90s, like you didn't go into the arts. Like that wasn't a respectable field. <laughs> right. I, I think nowadays we've learned you can do almost anything, but, um, you know, so, so some of my family became, you know, traditional path, get your degree, go yeah. to law school, something like that. But my eldest brother, Sam was, um, you know, a little bit of a, an issue as far as just doing his own thing for the parents. It was difficult. And he had lost his mother. So he was my stepbrother, but he had lost his mother when he was young. And mm. so, you know, for whatever reason, he was amazing, but the cultural times weren't with his vision. And so while we're being told all this stuff, he goes off and does his own thing. And he ended up being a director. He directed uh, Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit was his first video. Oh, my goodness. And so, you know, he, there were some other things, too. But it was essentially we watched him go from mom and dad lecturing and having a problem <laughs> and don't be like this sort of thing. Yeah. So they loved them so much. Yeah. But, you know, 
and you can't do the art to like video when video wasn't necessarily like something anyone thought of. And he went from that. And of course he did, you know, he did green day and smashing pumpkins and blind melon. And, and meanwhile, he's, he's off being a young guy enjoying success. <laughs> we never saw him. I'm still middle-class kid <laughs> worried about whatever. Bill. That must add a huge impact on you. Yeah. And so it was like, you know, and he did the cranberries and I watched this rise. And so it was sort of this lesson that you can do what you want. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you really can. And his attitude was always that way. And it still is to this day. Um, are you? And a, so I think for me, it was a different type of music I got into than his generation. But Are you a, a hybrid of, of your parents and of your brother? Because you got a degree as well, but then you also got into the music business. So in one, in one sense, you obeyed your parents, but you must have been really influence or inspired. no 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 i was i was way more influenced by my brothers okay and um i have another brother josh who's a comic book artist and um oh, you know and that was never necessarily the fruitful thing but he ended up doing you know like the opening drawings in the hbo show rome back when, when oh, wow. that was some of the early stuff sure. but he's amazing and he's one of those artists that both both my brothers but josh in particular the comic book artist is just he's a pure artist like he can't you can't sit without 10 notebooks and a bag full of art supplies in Denny's or the coffee shop or, or waiting for the bus. And he's just drawing nonstop. Yeah, yeah. And he has been drawing nonstop for 40 years. And so it's not, it wasn't about money ever. It was just art. And, um, we grew up with a lot of art in the house and paintings and his mother was a painter. Um, yeah, I was curious so where, I think where those the art, were the big influences. Well, my, my degree was uh, an accident. Um, <laughs> I actually, that's nice. You know, I, I graduated early and thought I was super smart and moved out west when I was like 16. And then I, I, wow. I spiraled down into rebellion and, and exploring the world and finding out you can do whatever you want, but in a negative sense. And um, when I was in my uh, mid 20s, a lot of violence kind of crept into my circle because it was just not, not mm. the place you want to be going. And um, that trauma. I kind of used going back to school, got a degree in English and writing and literature and not so much about that, but just about wanting and starting the record label at the same time of just, uh, I needed something to heal and, and cathartic yeah. and I needed to step away from that world and offer it to other people. And that's, that was one of the first things music did is, man, you can really meet people in music either way, up or down on the spiral. Sure. And as long as they're willing to, as long as you're spiraling upwards, I don't care how low you've been or what you've been through, music is cathartic for that. And I wanted to offer that as a sustainable reality um, because it saved me in that sense. Mm. And then the degree came with that because it was a great place to, to hide out and read literature and write. And uh, I had some really good, I, I modeled early on my, the label off of uh, kind of the same way you write a story. Interesting. Well, I was going to ask, I mean, like when you get a degree, even if the degree isn't relevant to your career choice, just the practice of, uh, of the, you know, three or four years in, in university or college that it takes to get a degree can really have a positive impact and build discipline when it, whatever business you start or work in. Have you found that to be true with the label? Entirely. Entirely. Yeah. It's not at all about the knowledge. And I mean, if you think about it as, as a grown man or a grown woman, Practically, of course, it's obvious. Like, you, you graduate college and you have absolutely zero experience when you start the first day of 20 or 30 years of a career. Mm -hmm. What do you think you really know? It's not about that. And, and so for me, school was 
you know, it was, it was traumatic in the sense of like, you lose your identity. I had my guard up so high from the world I'd been in and you have to let that guard down and you have to, especially in writing with workshopping and all that, you have to let people criticize you. Right. And you have to not be in love with your own stuff. And there's something about academics in general that's very, it can be frustrating because there's no finish line. There's never an end to this pursuit of knowledge and of, of, of more purity of understanding. And learning that methodology, it makes work satisfying in some ways because there's a close to each thing. Yeah, right. Um, and so it's nice. And I still have friends and, you know, runs a photography department here in Arizona. And, um, you know, it's funny when you talk to them about art, it's that same academic mentality. It's, it's never ending. And for me, it's, no, we've got to get this out. <laughs> like right. It's, it's got to function in the real world. Too. Yeah, so it's yeah. a nice balance. No, that's a good point. Let me ask you about investing in your business. A lot of, uh, of labels that we interact with on this show or through the community consider their labels to be a passion project. And a lot of us are reluctant to invest actual funds into a label, but, um, you know, and, and I think a lot of us were fine with investing implicit costs, but it's those explicit costs that a lot of us shy away from. I wonder what your opinion is of that, because, you know, I, I wonder if we're setting ourselves up to fail, not a lot of businesses can just open up with, with zero investment and, and expect to make money. <laughs> Do you have any thoughts? Yeah. The total opposite. Like if you're not in danger every day, <laughs> you're not going to push yourself. Right, right. You're not going yeah. to be sleepless <laughs> unless there's someone coming for you. And that is how I've lived for a lot of years. And, you know, when I started, so when I graduated school, um, I started a teaching company. And, and so I was making some money doing that for professors coming over on sabbatical with their kids and, and sort of educating kids from Japan and China and, and, and Korea. Mm. And I was taking that money and pouring it into the record label. And I mean, I probably could have had a very nice, stable life and career, much more stable than I did the first five years of the record label right. because of that. But I poured every penny. And I mean, I remember after like five years, a friend saying to me when he saw me buy a new shirt, like, well, I'm really glad you got something for yourself. Because <laughs> I was working 100 hours a week. I was living off of like ripped force drinks and caffeine pills, doing 50, 60 hours running my teaching company. And just taking every job I could get for funds to buy a beat and then to make a song and to build wow. the label. And it, you know, I think it was around year four, maybe 2012, when I started, I put out like Apollo Brown trophies and um, Dice Game and with Guilty. And, and I started to realize I am now at a juncture where I have no more time. I'm sleeping four or five hours a night hmm. and I have been for years. I love both things but I have no more time to give and this one is growing and it's where I want to be. I have to step back. And I always liked having that stability of a little bit of funds from over there, a little bit over here, but I had to step back. And so that's when I poured it all in and I was, I was able to just go into the record label. But even now it's, I'm always looking for what I call the thing and the other thing, right? You've got to have the second thing to bring into the other. And that's both knowledge base wise and that's also, man, financially, that's a big thing too, right? Mm. If, you can, if you can make some money on the side somewhere else and pour it in, people wonder how you jumped a level. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, it's just, but since I love it, I've lost a lot of money on some projects. 
but you never really feel that when you love the project. Sure. Yeah, I get And that. when you look at it long term, it's been funny. Like I look back now that I've been in it long enough that I go, those things that I thought lost so much, first in the beginning when it's five or ten thousand dollars and that felt like a ton to me, it came back after two or three years. And then when it started to get bigger numbers, you started realizing, yeah, it might take eight years, but if you're really in this long term and the artists are too. Even that comes back in eight years, and you start to realize, wow, in year nine, I actually made a profit. That's crazy. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's unbelievable. Um, okay, so let me ask you a little bit about hip-hop. <clears throat> Do hip-hop fans behave differently than other indie genres Like when it comes to how they consume or purchase music? Is there one platform or format that does better for hip-hop than, say, indie rock or, or electronic music? If I'm being honest, I don't know anything else other than hip hop fans. Okay. That's tough to say. Yeah. But what I will say about hip hop fans is they are fiercely entrepreneurial. And what I find is the indie rock crowds or these other rock scenes I see in music in general. Yeah. I find a lot less of the crowd that wants to be on stage and, and a lot less of the crowd that's criticizing or critiquing. And I don't mean that in a positive or in a negative way about hip-hop. What I love about hip-hop is the fans want to do it too. It's an immersive thing. And so it's a really, like, so as far as sales go, in in the beginning, I think vinyl was a big thing. And I think hip-hop is to be credited a lot with the vinyl resurgence. Okay. Because it got you to engage, the DJ got you to engage with the music. It got you to purchase. It's got you to be able to buy the acapellas or search out the instrumentals and create your own music from it or remixes. Um, whether you go back to you know Ninth Wonder or or God's Stepson, like these these remix projects that made people blow up a little bit too. But it's hip hop is a very active community, and they're always looking for how they can do it and do it better mm-hmm. than even their biggest hero. And so, with that said, I think that they consume music much more ferociously, like they. They know release dates. They know they want to have it before it's out. And oh, that's cool. It's, uh, it's competitive in that sense, but it's also really what makes it fun to me. And it's like, you know, for a while when I began, everybody wanted to be an MC, and then everybody wanted to be a DJ, and then everyone wanted to be a producer. Yeah, and then everyone wanted a clothing company. But it's like <laughs> the fans were like that. But it, there was a lot of complaining about that. But what I loved about it is that is your base. That is who you talk to, and when you talk to hip hop fans they've had a label too, you find most of the time. And, you know, I talk to fans in, in other genres and they're really just music fans. Yeah. yeah. Um, do, do the so physical the, formats uh, carry over too? Like, like you talk about vinyl, but like cassettes, is that, have you done any of that? Uh, are, do you, do yeah, you still do yeah, CDs? We haven't had, yeah, we do CDs. And, and I've been saying this for, since the day I started, everybody, this is a problem with, with, Knowledge from books versus wisdom from doing it, right? Okay. Everybody knew 10 years ago CDs were dead. Okay. But that's because they're following what the major corporations are looking at. When, when a major company says, we went from 1 billion at a peak down to 0.9 billion, <laughs> yeah, it's a decline. And now it's down to 0.8 billion. Yeah. And, and over the next 10 years, we're going to, this is a dead industry. Right. They're forgetting that you sold. 900 million yes yes and so we press stuff and it's like i've seen cds be dead for a decade yeah and yes they have been steadily declining every single year but 
you would have been leaving for us in the beginning, 50% of your sales. Right. And then now, even now, like after CDs are an afterthought, 25 to 30% of total sales. Wow. And, and people, if you told people you had a way to make them increase their streaming revenue 25%, <laughs> there'd be seminars. They'd be booking you everywhere. <laughs> and the answer is CDs. And guess what CDs are going to be next year? 20% of sales maybe. And then maybe right. 19%. Until sure. it becomes what I see as like vinyl's resurgence, right? Yeah. People liked vinyl because you could go buy it in the dollar bin and make music from it as a producer or play it for people. Now people are paying $40 for vinyl. Totally. And it's a way to support, and it's wonderful, and it's collectible, and it's awesome. I love vinyl. But there's going to be this moment, I think, when CDs have that. Yes, Where the really underground heads who don't care what you think of them, they love the music, can go find a stash of CDs that are out-of-print music. Yes. Because they didn't make money, pay $100 and get 200 CDs, and find stuff you haven't heard and can't find because it's not on Spotify. Yeah. And it's futuristic looking. It's this little silver floating disc. It's got a <laughs> booklet with art. Man, this is going to be cool at one point. And, I, and then that's when we'll be paying $50 for the new version. Of oh, geez. You know what? I've literally had this conversation on the last episode I did. And it, I totally agree. I can sense it coming. I think cassettes um, have been great because for a band, you can make a physical product. You can actually make it at home. And... Um, and you can make it and it and for an, a fan it's ten dollars and it's cheaper to ship than a vinyl and it's cheaper to make than vinyl and I think CDs I think people will see that to be true uh, about CDs as well yeah yeah and tapes we've done tapes but we've never had quite I know people have had really good luck with it but like you said on the road it's great mm-hmm. as a label from a store it's not as great I see it's a cool little piece to see and touch in person yeah. Oh yeah. 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 Especially for, you know, anyone who may have grown up with them, you mm-hmm. know, anybody whose parents had them. Man, I still owe Columbia records money for that one. Same. Same. Deal. Yes. <laughs> yes. Same. Yeah. Yeah. Or the other one, wasn't it BMG that did it for a little while too? I yeah. did both of them. Yeah. yeah. What a great deal. <laughs> what a great deal. Uh, that destroyed my credit as a 14 year old. Exactly. <laughs> Not paying those bills. <laughs> Is there a difference between indie hip hop and mainstream hip hop? The first thing I noticed with your records is how gritty they are in, in a good way. Just these really unique sounds, not so polished, but this tone of, of texture in the mix. Can you explain that to me a little bit? I mean, within hip hop, there's so many variations that it's so nuanced that it's, it's you know obvious to people there. From an outside perspective, I think that what people think of as hip hop that's moving or, or as rap that's moving these giant numbers yeah. of units is really pop music. That's right. That's and so right. you've got you know these these multi million dollar studios and you've got such a clean sound that it's um that's a good. Point. I compare it if it was a city it would be New York or L A right where right. it's like it, it's already <laughs> it's already the peak of everything so you you're just running at this like glossy ass level. <laughs> And and that can be cool when that's what you're looking for, and that's what you know. You're, that's why your mom or, or your little sister or, or an eight year old will vibe to some music that just has a good beat or whatever yeah. that's commercial and sounds pretty, even though what they're saying might be atrocious. <laughs> and then I can put on something pretty gritty and underground that they're saying something really meaningful and powerful, 
but it sounds scary to people from the outside. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. Because those are war drums they're hearing. That's that's actual scars. That's actual. Right. And it's not. Um, so to me, there's a big difference in that. One is pop. Um, but, you know, there's also, like I said, there's some really mainstream stuff that is just, it's big money. And yeah. it's um, yeah. it's a vibe and it's it's fun for them. And I, I never, you know, I think people from our label would be, when if we ever did something like that, that happened organically, they'd reject it because it's not what they think we are. Mm. But I don't have a judgment about it. Like, I love that too. Um, Manny Fresh was dope back in the day. Like, I love, and now he's not considered like that. So I think there's a lot of really pop rap that's polished. That's great. It's just not sure. what I do. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, there's def- I'm kind of looking for the James Baldwin of rappers, you know. I want there- somebody who's just telling a real story there's definitely this heart that you see on on your band camp and it comes through in the artwork and and the music it's um oh man it's just something really really special i actually i i interpreted a, a consistent a, aesthetic um from all of the records i listened to today do you do you feel like there is like do you feel like there's this mellow thread that goes through everything yeah, and I think that that's part of that one-to-one transmission, right? Because I've never gotten to the point where me or Austin or the other artists haven't been a part of the process of who we're bringing on. And and that means that it's got to be something we like. And so the taste is going to be growing as we grow, but within that that zone. And it's very much, you know, if I had to say what label I, I appreciate the aesthetics of long-term, it's Blue Note. Um, like, yeah, sure. And, and, and I mean, I compare, I hope that when people look back at us in 30 years, that we had such a swath of artists that sure you had your miles or you had your coal trains. I hope we have those too, but that those, those lesser artists at the time with, with history start to be seen as real classics. That's right. And, and good point. You know, while, while now we say, oh, that, that drummer was amazing. Like maybe back then he was just the drummer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he had that right. deal, but it wasn't making money. For he couldn't pay point, rent. Yeah. That's a good point. And nowadays it's incredible. It's and iconic. I think, yeah. I hope we can do that because every artist that we work with mesmerizes us, which is why we work with them. They have something special or unique. And I spend years trying to share that with people to get them to see what they're doing and to help the artists continue and develop. Mm. So I hope that we have that sort of lasting appeal and, and that the thread that goes through it is, is going to be me or, or the small team of people we work with who worked with these guys. So you're going to have the same sphere of influence. And I like to build history into records, right? So there's no part of a record that you shouldn't be able to look at and, and be kind of intrigued by, like whether that's the graphic designer yes. who mixed it who mastered it. Yes. Like there should be a connection and a reason why you used that person. Not just he, he's the studio in the neighborhood. That's a good point. And, and to me, it, that circles back to a lot of us. And I don't know if you're this way as well, but a lot of us in the music industry and in the, the record label business got cut our teeth by reading liner notes when we were, you know, teenagers or just kids. And, and I feel like that circles back. It's like, where is this? Uh, mysterious record label because their address is printed on the back and I want to go to that place and, and and who are these people that play drums or sing back or play saxophone so that yeah I totally agree that's how, how I got started yeah it's, I've got this weird thing about me when I travel 
I like to travel places and, you know, I'll go off on my own because nobody else wants to do this. But it's like I visit a lot of graveyards to visit graves of people that are interesting to me and pay respects. And, hmm. you know, I'll look up old houses I know people lived in. And oh, I just want to drive cool. by. I just yeah. want to soak in the neighborhood and see what's this like. I want to get out of the car and walk around and feel that. That's a great point. And yeah. I, I like that. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, that, that's fun for me. But I only know that because, like you said, the liner notes, the details. Yeah. But I try to offer those in hints in our notes. So I found that I found that when I was in Memphis, just you know, like it, you just felt like spirits like around you. It was just surreal, you know, like this is the street that Elvis walked on. Johnny Cash, very very weird. Yeah. Um, oh, actually, I was in a Starbucks right across the street from Sun Records. That was weird. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, Oh man, I love I love uh, the comparison to Blue Note because I haven't thought about that, but really that is one of the most um, iconic record labels that people are really more familiar with the label than they are with some of the artists. Um, unfortunately, they declined to uh, to be interviewed. <laughs> I still love them. Um, do you get involved with the producing of the records? I know you said you early on, but I, how involved with with mixing and mastering of the actual? creative the the artist's role how involved are you with that um i try to step back as much as i can these days from that um but i can step in and advise and be a part of it at any level obviously i don't make the music though but yeah it's um you know one, one thing that i do is i do these compilations as a label that are kind of my moment to do what i used to do in the beginning which is I I pick the production, I talk to the producer, I pick the vocalist, I get it mixed, I get it mastered, I do mm. the artwork, I cut tracks, I, I arrange it. So I do that on the compilations, but I'm not making the songs, those are the artists. And um, But I do get to basically truly executive produce. Like that's what I see yeah, in the actual, true. you know, like where you actually have a hand in it. I do that for those projects because I want to have that outlet. Um. And there's plenty of, of newer artists that I'll, I'll advise, you know, who to work with or, or suggest people for them. But it's really all the albums are the artists love. And, and I've learned I have no I have no place there that I should be there. And I, I've learned the other role of an executive producer is really I, I do on the business side of these records what they do on the music side internally. Good point. And yeah. I, I take some pride in that. And that's fun now. And I don't have to get my hands into what they're doing. I, um, I agree. Yeah, I totally know what you mean. Yeah. Is there, I know you wear lots of hats because that's a part of keeping the cost down. It's part of your, the way you run the label. Is there a part of the job that excites you, uh, more than others, or is it the, the diversity of responsibilities? Yeah, that's, it's the diversity. It's, I have a real problem, which is whatever aspect I dive into, I have an addictive personality. I love it. Like this mm. time of year is accounting season, right? <laughs> and it's like, um, I love doing pro project accounting. I dread it all year long. And then yeah. once I get into it, man, it's really amazing the patterns you see. That's true. The, yeah, yeah. the things that you see between projects. And if I was to pawn this off like I do tax work or something, it, I would miss those that granular level of seeing what worked and what didn't. Or, Good point. You know, an example of this is we discovered, this was a while back when we did it, but the more we spent on advertising, the less successful the record. And okay, that's stop, not pause, at all pause, a pause, statement pause. to apply. The more, <laughs> repeat that. The more, the you more spe we spent on ads, yeah. the, the less successful the record was. 
And that is not at all to say that is a true statement. Put that up and do that. Sure. (laughs) But what we recognized is it only applied to what we were doing in that particular moment of time, Mm. which was doubling down on a record we loved when it didn't hit. Ah. So when a record's hitting and it's just rolling, you don't tend to get out there and be like, oh, I got to boost this. I got to advertise this everywhere. I got to get a a bench on a bus stop for this. (laughs) But when a guy you love and a record that's great just doesn't get any, it's flat, you think, oh, we just got to show it to more people. That's right, right, right. And we were finding that there was a real correlation. We could even look at our email blasts, right, like from our subscribers. And when you have five email blasts about one record, almost invariably, it didn't do well. Mm. Not because of the blast, but because we just kept trying. Mm. And and when you only had to put out your two or three, you know, to announce the record release day and then something afterwards, a video, those records were rolling along, just doing because you were busy doing that project that worked. And that's the kind of stuff you see when you get into it. So so not just accounting, but every level of it, the graphic design, like I'm real into the web store today. It's just like you start looking through being like, you know what, this needs a cleaner album description. And then you start writing album descriptions yeah. and then I'm hitting up writers like, man, I want to redo all of them. Can you take this project on? And mm. I love that. It's L- fun. <laughs> Let me go back. I want to go back and ask you just something you said a couple seconds ago. If, if, a, if a record just isn't taking, you believe in it, you love it, it's special to you, but it's, the audience just isn't taking it. For, for you as a business person, as a record label, that's no big deal because you have another, it's like a movie studio. You have another record coming out in a couple of weeks, uh, or you can offset those losses with, with another record that exceeded your expectations. But for the artist, that's their one record for the next two years. And they poured their heart and soul into it. How do you uh, encourage them? I mean, you can justify it as a label, move on. But for them, that's all they got. Yeah, that's that's the thing you have to remember. That's why these are, like KRS says, there is no industry, right? It's people working with people. And you mm. got to remember, like, this record isn't a, a, isn't a commodity. It's a person's life. It's yes. their work. It's yes. their job. And so that's why we that's why we double down on it. I very rarely walk away from a project without if it fails, I want to know and I want the artist to know I put everything I could into it. Mm. And doing that and, and you know, we don't usually walk away from artists just because it didn't perform. Like that's not right. We're we're, we're fortunate enough to be able to do that, but there are times when I think it usually the artist first steps away because he's like they just feel it. They can't yeah. keep getting diminishing returns on their end. And so, you know, I try to remind artists like uh, in those phases, cause it's happened. Hey man, if you, if you can only generate $15,000 a year off of music, you can't live off of that, mm. but I'm here. And that's a, that's an amazing side thing to do. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's an ama- I know you're going to want that 15 grand a year for vacation if you're working at <laughs> a job. Yeah, that's so true. as long as you're into music and making good music, I'm here for you. You have a place and a home with us. Oh, that's nice. But this is the reality of what we're doing. And and it's usually the artists who, you know, they get caught up in something else then. Um, mm. But that's how I view it. And it's you really do have to... I, I share things with artists they don't want to hear. And you get a lot of... Usually the records that don't work are the artists that get very angry at you or, or feel bad. Okay. But if you handle it right, a year or two later, that relationship's back yeah, and they yeah. appreciate it. I've had plenty of artists say they don't want to see a statement or you know, question, why would you why would you continue to do this if it's losing money? And you want to say, like, yeah, that's a great question. 
But the answer is you. <laughs> like, <laughs> we, we actually care about you and the music. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. It's great for you to be able to turn around a failure into a encouragement. Yeah, I mean, because if you're making commerce first, you're not making music or art. So, yeah. you know, we got to just look at a record and, and judge it by its merits and not even compared to other people, just this piece of art from this person. Did it do what you wanted at that moment? We'll mm. find a way to, to monetize that with time if we need to. Yeah. And, you know, and that's why I like long-term deals. I, I hate licensing records. Like, right. I get it. Right. And I think it's something that very established, successful artists, it makes sense for. Like, if you know you can put a record out yourself today and make 200 grand, you don't need anybody. Sure. So you're, you're hiring someone to do a job and you license it to them. But I don't, I don't like that because, you know, I, I'd do that with somebody if I needed to. But I want to be able to know that there's a moment for this record. And, and I think about it. Like, I'm excited to repress something from 10 years ago that didn't make money back then. I think it's ready now. You know? Oh, cool. Yeah, um, that stuff's a lot of fun, and you see it with some of these beautiful, beautiful labels that put out old music that clearly didn't make it back then. But that's now true. They seem to have found a market. That's true. I love those labels. Yeah, Michael, this has been, and I'm not, I'm not lying. This has been one of my favorite conversations. Thank you so much for doing this. This has been incredible. Oh, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Make sure you go to mellowmusicgroup.bandcamp.com or mellowmusicgroup.com. And remember, it's spelled M-E-L-L-O. To check out the label, I want to thank Mike for doing the show. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly enjoyed that episode. I pulled out so many wise things um, that he shared, uh, and I hope you got a lot from it. Make sure you're joining our Facebook group as well. You can go to facebook.otherrecordlabels.com. We'd love to have you a part of the community to talk about running a record label and to ask each other questions. And that group is well over 800 members now, and it's so, so amazing. And if you have any questions, um, man, I get to hear from you guys every day. It's so incredible. Uh, send me an email, podcast at otherrecordlabels.com. Uh, and uh, I'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening.